It's good to start that way, I think. I think it's good to start being reminded um, that in our trials in life, God will never let go. And that is certainly true, not just because we sang it, but because that's what the Bible proclaims. And I love that. So thank you for that song. Um, and I love that. I love that prayer, too, to be honest with you, that God, we're coming here tonight and we're trusting that you're going to do good things. But but that you would allow your word, I think he said, to soften our hearts. And because we're talking about this issue of sin and how do we deal with sin, I think for some of us, we need that. We need God's Holy Spirit to continue to soften my heart, to be receptive to what he says through James. Because James is kind of some hard truths, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a little kick in the pants, if you, if you will, about things that you and I are wrestling with that we probably wouldn't tell the person sitting next to us. But we know it and God knows it and we're coming tonight as a collective body saying, God, we want you to deal with us in such a way that the next time we celebrate Easter, we're going to be a little bit farther along, a little bit deeper in the word, a little closer to you. We may be inviting some neighbors, inviting some friends, taking a step out in faith. And then the next year after that, we're just going to be a little farther along. And that's because we're doing what you've called us to do, God, which is to know you. And to make you known. And so that's why we gather at times like this tonight. And I'm excited, guys, because nationally speaking, churches in America average this size that we're here on a Tuesday night on Sunday mornings. The average church in America is roughly 200 people. And so we're averaging well over that every Tuesday night. And that says something about your desire to come and to learn on an off Sunday, which I'm so appreciative of. Um, did anyone come to the Easter service? Phenomenal, wasn't it? Well, not a great service. Uh, kudos to, to Lynn and Marty and the gang, and great job. I hope you brought some people with you. I didn't get any numbers yet, but um, I, guys, I did the cardinal sin. I came at 1035, and so, and, and we were sitting actually right down here, and, um, and you know how Lynn will, like, you know, if you're in the first kind of, he'll, he'll kind of look at you in your face, you know, and it was the one Sunday I thought, please don't look at me, please don't. Because I thought, man, I'm keeping someone from sitting in there, but um, I did it anyway. I don't know what to say about that. I guess I should confess that. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And guys, that's um, just over 9,000 for the combined eight services. Uh, And I think we're averaging about 55 or so. And so we almost doubled in one weekend um, the numbers. And we're praying that. Uh, we would have several hundred who responded yes to that uh, decision that would you put your faith in Christ. And so that's what it's all about. Um, And so bring them back this week for the new series, Worst Friend Ever. Bring them back. That's an intentional series to get people who aren't maybe accustomed to coming every week to church to get them back into the door so that they can continue here to hear about the great news of Christ. And so we're excited about that. And then yesterday, of course, was uh, April Fool's. Did anyone pull any April Fool's pranks? Was there any... Any, did you get pranked? Um, I've got a 13, a 9, and a 7-year-old. I thought, I can't miss this opportunity. And so during dinner, I pulled up a picture on my laptop of Kauai. And I had it to my chest. And they were all kind of eating and stuff. And I said, all right, here's the deal, guys. Is, um, you know, I'm off this summer and as a teacher. And so I thought, you know, why not? We're not rich or anything. But I thought I would just take everyone. I flipped it around to Hawaii. And so I, you know, was screaming and my nine-year-old got out of his seat and did the happy dance. And he is just all around. And I know. So, and 
The trick is, is to wait till they reach the high point of elation, right? Don't get them on the way up. You got to wait till they're way up here. He was talking about going to volcanoes and swimming with dolphins. And I thought, yeah, just keep coming. Keep buying it. Keep buying it. So, yeah, that was a great evening. Um, So, yeah, yeah. So... um, so we did that, and we're going to talk about slander today and, and gossip and, and using your tongue. And uh, so um, turn to James chapter 4 with me, if you wouldn't mind. Um, James chapter 4. Um, again, James is talking about this issue in chapter 4 that I really think that, that we need to open our hearts to, and that is this issue of what are we doing with I think what I referred to last week as that pet sin, that sin that maybe our neighbor doesn't know about and and prayerfully might never know about, but God knows about it. And James is obviously calling you and me to a higher standard of living. He's calling us to do something that is very countercultural, which is to deal with our sin and to deal with it in such a way that not only do we confess it, but we repent of our sins. And that means not only to acknowledge its sin, but to turn from that sin. How do we do that and how do we do it effectively? And so we started to address some of these issues as to how to deal with that. And I want to revisit that this week before we break next week. But before we get to that, the way it's positioned in James chapter 4, he begins to address how do we deal with it in verses about 6 through 10. But then he goes back into some other issues in verse 11. So what I want to do is just drop down to verse 11 with me. And I want to talk about one more issue in terms of a sin before we get back into how to deal with it. Remember last week we decided that James says in verse 4, if you are a friend of the world, that makes you an enemy of God. So what does it mean to be a friend of the world? And we looked at several passages that gave us kind of indicators of if that's me or not. Uh, We looked at 1 John and we looked at Ephesians and a couple other passages that describes over and over again, what, it, what it's like to be a friend of the world. And without belaboring that point, we, we just left it up to you to decide, am I a friend of the world right now? And while most of us would agree that because I have a changed life, because I'm a new creation, not every area of my life, I would say, is friendly toward the world. So those areas that I'm doing well in, maybe you do have a balanced budget. And maybe uh, you have a great marriage right now. Maybe you're in a season of wonderful parenting. Obviously, I need some help in that area. But maybe you're doing well in that area. So you go down the list and you say, well, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing what God wants me to do in this area, in this area, in this area. But if I know you like I know me, there's one or two areas that we're struggling in. And maybe for some, there's a little bit more. But certainly for all of us in here, I'll bet... If we were to go around the room, we could all identify one or two areas that we would identify as as maybe world-friendly. And that's the issue James wants to address with you tonight. Not the areas you're doing well in. Those areas that you're shored up in and you're doing well in, great. Keep going in that direction. Don't give in to those things. But there's probably one Achilles heel you have. Uh, Maybe it's uh, it's what we're going to talk about. Right now, maybe it is being a friend of the world in finances or marriage or uh, in sex in some sort of way or lust. Or maybe it is in friendships or uh, with work and the habits you have. But James brings back to us a point that he addressed in chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 11 of chapter 4. 
And he says in chapter, 11, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, don't speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so James wants to, wants to address one more thing with us. And he addresses this in depth in chapter 3, basically verses 1 through 12. And that is, again, how are we speaking about our brothers? Now, in this particular case, we are offering judgment to our brothers and sisters. And so James is calling out those whose pet sin is to walk through life and to determine what everyone's life should look like according to me. And so he's calling you out if your pet sin is to slander your brother or sister or to judge them. Um, we have other passages that speak to this as well. And I just want to turn to a couple just to give us a full picture. Um, take your Bibles. Just go to the left. Hold your finger in James 4. Go to the left to Romans chapter 1. So we're still in the New Testament. Go back to Romans chapter 1. And let's look at verse 28. Starting in 28. Now in Romans chapter 1, Paul is giving a description here of the Gentiles. And he is claiming that the Gentiles are guilty before God right now. And the Gentiles at this point, he's speaking of people who do not know God. And he's giving a description of those who don't know God. And he says in verse 28, And just as they, the Gentiles, did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which aren't proper. Now, whatever he says following here, we don't know much, but we know this. Whatever list he's about to give are things that are not proper. So if you're struggling in this area, whatever justification you're using to struggle in this area, to continue doing this, you need to know that according to God, it's improper. So however you're finding a way to justify doing this over and over and over again, Paul is saying, this is the way the unbeliever acts. And in 29, he says, and being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they do not, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So James is saying, listen, if you're about the business in your daily life of continually and constantly looking at your brother or sister in Christ and judging them by way of their life, their actions, their words, their thoughts, and you're constantly in their face about what they're doing is right or wrong. And most of the time we do that, we do that in the gray areas of life, I'm convinced. It's not in the black and white areas, typically, that we decide judgment. Because God's already decided that. It's in the areas of preference. It's in the areas that are uh, somewhat gray. Um, we, would, we, would, uh, we would say things like... Um, the music they listen to, or the way they dress, or the way they talk, the word choice they use. Some might even go to education or financial issues. And 
We just cast judgment upon our brothers and sisters. And James says, who are you to do that? Who are you to slander someone who also loves Jesus? And Paul gives us a description of a non-believer. And right there in verses 29 and 30, it says they are gossips and slanderers. See, that actions, those actions are left for non-believers. They're not for you and for me. How do you use your tongue? How have you used your tongue? Um, if you look at 2 Corinthians, just go to one more passage real quick. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians, just a few books over to the right. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I found this pass, passage somewhat fascinating. Uh, let's see, 2 Corinthians 12. Start in 19. 2 Corinthians 12, 19. Listen to this. Paul says, All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife and jealousy, and angry tempers, disputes, and slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Paul's saying, I'm afraid that if I come back to Corinth, if I make my third visit over to Corinth, I may find this in the church. Isn't it funny that he gives a list that sounds eerily familiar to many churches in America today? How many churches do you think you and I could walk into and find strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances. This was 2,100 years ago. How universal is our sin? How things never change. I talked to my class today. I teach juniors and seniors over at Valley Christian High School. And I asked my seniors today, I said uh, two questions, just give me an informal poll because I knew I was to be speaking on this tonight. I just wanted their opinion on how they handle social media. Social media is the it's prevalent, obviously, in, in youth. And so Twitter and, and Facebook and the like. And so I, I, the two questions I asked were this. Have you ever had something bad said about you on social media? And then two, have you ever said something bad about someone else on social media? Have you ever had some, someone say something bad about you on social media? And then number two, have you ever said something bad about someone else? And long story short, the number of yeses to both of those questions was between two to three times the number of no's. So if 20 people said no, 40 to 60 people said yes to those questions. It's almost as if we live in a culture today, gang, where if you're going to be on social media, and this is not a message on social media, but if you're going to be on social media, we've almost adopted this philosophy that I've got to take the good with the bad. Meaning, I know that things are going to be said about me. Pictures are going to be posted of me that aren't flattering. People are going to make comments about me that aren't too nice. I just have to accept that. And part of the privilege of being on social media is I get to do the same. And I just wonder if it's worth it. Um, I had a student come to me last fall, I think I mentioned a little while ago, and she was devastated because someone created a fake Twitter account and posted horrible, horrible things about her. And when the dust settled, it was a close friend. Why? Because you can. 
And that's the culture that the next generation of church leaders, the next generation of church husbands and wives, the next generation of business leaders are involving their activities in is that culture of social media where maligning someone, slandering someone, judging someone is commonplace. Lest we think it's only with the youth, let's ask ourselves, have you ever maligned someone or said something you wish you hadn't said and tweeted it or posted it on your account? We are damaging each other as brothers and sisters in Christ through social media. I'm convinced of it. And I would love for someone to change my opinion about, well, yeah, but I get to know when people's birthdays are and I get to get, you know, birth announcements and okay. But you got to be real careful about what you say and who you say it to. Apologies fall way, way short, guys. When you've said something that has maligned my character, even if you can take it back or erase it, once it's out there, it's out there. Um, I read a quote recently that said, 10% of any population is cruel no matter what. 10% is merciful no matter what. 80% can be moved in either direction. And I think a lot of us are in that 80% right now. We're not the cruel people necessarily that go around just saying mean things all the time, but we're not the 10 either. We're kind of in that 80% where we're, well, she did it to me, he did it to me, now I get payback. Um, And that can be dangerous. I don't know, if you, if you have my, uh, can I get my iPad up and running here? I don't know if it'll come up. Um, this is, see this app here? These are my three adorable children that I often tease and that are not going to Hawaii. <laughs> now I'm going to have to take them because you guys are guilting me into taking them. I'm going to fly in first class and go into debt. Um, you see this one? This is an affirmation app. You, you buy this, I think it cost me a dollar. We have to have apps now that give us positive affirmation. Um, I'm successful in whatever I do. I sleep soundly and peacefully. What if you don't? What is this? Um, I am a unique and valuable person just as I am. Uh, I make powerful and enjoyable business relationships, and many of my business contacts are now my friends. And on and on. I'm loving and lovable, and I find love everywhere. This is, this, is what, this is what we're down to, though. We're down to purchasing apps that have to be encouraging to us because our brothers and sisters won't be. I have to find affirmation through this rather than one of you. Um, these apps should never have to exist. Not only should they not have to exist in the church, they shouldn't have to exist in the world because as the church, we should be encouraging and affirming those in the world. Those neighbors that don't know Jesus, that have a great lawn, we should be over there praising them for a great lawn. Those co-workers that don't know Jesus and yet they, they got the, the parts in on time, we should be praising them for being a hard worker. And yet, isn't it often we find ourselves you know, on a way, on the way to something and talking to our spouse or talking to someone else. And we just have to slip in. 
Yeah, they got the parts and on time, but man, did you see the way they dress today? Yeah, they do a great lawn, but man, do you see that, you know, the way their kids dress or, you know, it's, we just can't help it. And so we basically tell the world, go find positive affirmation, not in the church, not from me. Go find it through an app. And maybe, just maybe, you'll find one that you like. All my relationships are loving and harmonious. I mean, that's enough to make us throw up. We know that's not true. Who is this? And what if the world actually thought, and you know, you had a friend who was a neighbor that didn't know Jesus, and you saw this on their iPad, and you made fun of it, because that, is, that should be made fun of right there. And they said, yeah, but you know, sadly, it's the only place I can get affirmation. Conviction. Because we should be doing that. And James here, go back to James chapter 4. James acknowledges, thank you. Um, James acknowledges for us that we can do that, but often we choose not to. Okay, and so maybe, again, maybe this is something you're struggling with. I don't know. Maybe it is some other thing that you're befriending the world in. Lust or lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. I don't know what your pet issue is, but I know enough to know it needs to be dealt with. Coming off of Easter weekend, gang, how, how much more relative can it be than when we sang songs about Jesus dying for our sins? Even the songs we sang tonight should speak a little bit to us. Today's the day, tonight's the night to deal with something that has been, uh, that has been problematic in my life for a long time. Okay, so again, we looked at last week, how do we deal with sin And if you look back on James chapter 4, starting in verse 6, we acknowledge the fact that humility is going to play a massive, massive part in how we deal with sin. And we address this issue by understanding that humility is simply going to God and saying, I need your help. I cannot do this on my own. Now again, those areas that you're not struggling with, fine. But that area that you're constantly being uh, beaten down by the evil one in, maybe the reason that you're not having success is simply because you have not humbled yourself before God in this area. And it doesn't have to look any other way than you saying, I can do better, God. I know I can. For you and me to say, I'm sorry, God, I screwed up again in this area, but I'm going to do better today and I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm just going to go after it is not acting in humility, but guys, that's acting in pride. Because pride, the definition of pride is saying to God, I can do this on my own. I can fix this area of my life. And, and, and God, I don't need your help. And it's almost a false sense of humility because we're actually ashamed we live in this sin area. And we're too ashamed or too embarrassed to go to God and say, God, I need, I'm finally broken before you enough to say, help me. That's humility. And God says in verse 6, but a greater grace he gives. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, he says in verse 7, the beginning of 7, submit therefore to God. And so I'll just ask the question, in this pet sin area of your life, have you submitted it to God? Or are you still trying to fight it on your own? 
Because guys, tonight I want to help you understand who you're fighting against. Um, Because I think, based on what I read here, you're going to lose every single time if you do it in your own power. For instance, in verse 7 he says, Submit therefore to God, resist who? Resist the devil. That's who you're up against. In this pet scenario of yours, you're up against the devil himself. Now, think about this issue of pride and as it fits with the enemy that we're up against. We know that Satan fell because of pride. If you look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, we're not going to go to both passages, but in both of those passages, you have what we call a near and far reference. The near references are to the kings of Tyre and Sidon, I believe. But the far reference would be to Satan himself. And those passages clearly communicate the one thing that Satan had to have was authority over God. The one thing he couldn't get past and live with was submission to God. And so pride is, is the first sin there ever was. And because it's the first sin there ever was, Satan knows enough to know if, if I felt so good about being prideful and yet it cost me so much, I wonder if I could get frail, human, finite human beings to feel the way I felt, which is you can do better than what God has you in right now. And you may hear terms like, well, you just got to believe in yourself. And well, you just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And really, guys, what Satan is doing is feeding you and me lies of pride. And it's not to say that God hasn't given you a mind and to think and to reason and to discover and to invent and to interpret. But rather, the issue, I think, is when you do those things, who do you give the credit to? And God throughout the scriptures is calling you and me to live a life of humility rather than pride. I want to take you to a couple passages, but comment or question here in the front. And then um, while we're discussing this, go to, uh, let's go to Psalm 73. Go to Psalm 73 real quick. It could be a little closer to home than what you just said. Adam's sin was pride. I'm sorry, whose? Adam's sin. Oh, absolutely. The original sin was pride. He reached up. The original human sin. The original human sin. Absolutely. In fact, when we get to Genesis 3, for time's sake, I don't want to turn to Genesis 3 right now. But Satan used the same formula. In fact, when he tempts Eve, he, he questions God's word. He maligns God's character. And then finally he says to her, um, you don't, don't believe what God says about not becoming. You will know truth and, and or goodness and evil. You will know that. And God doesn't want you to know that. And he was feeding Eve lies of pride. And she fell right into it. And guys, I can't uh, put an exclamation point on this heavy enough tonight. Pride is something that God disdains. He absolutely hates pride. Psalm 73, uh, look at verse 1 of Psalm 73. Uh, Let's see here, hang on. Let's just start in verse 1. Listen to this. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw prosperity of the wicked. For, our, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. These are prideful people who are basically spiritually flipping off God. And guys, God, the God of all creation, lest you think, oh, God loves everyone and, you know, it's just one big ball of love and God hates this mindset and these actions of arrogance and pride. Uh, turn to Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 6 real quick. Uh, just the one book over, Proverbs chapter 6. And look at Proverbs 6 and go to uh, 16. Let's start in 16. Proverbs 6, 16. Just one second. Yeah. Proverbs six sixteen. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are abomination to him. So he's just making the... the Solomon's just accentuating the point. God... There are six things God hates, but seven are an abomination to him. So he's going to give a list here. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. These, God hates more than just these things. But we know this. He hates these things. And look at the very first thing God hates. Haughty eyes. Prideful eyes. It's the very first thing. He can't stand that. Go to Proverbs 16 real quick. Just a couple pages over Proverbs 16. Look at verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. And we see this over and over again. If you're writing any of these verses down, go to Isaiah chapter 2, 12 to, 12 to 17. Same thing. We see this constantly with the nation of Israel, God constantly rebuking them. And then we get to the New Testament. And let's fast forward. Go to the book of Revelation real quick. Book of Revelation and go to chapter 16. We now are in the judgment time, the end times. And the pride of mankind never ceases. We, God has, has disciplined Israel throughout the Old Testament. The, new, the church is getting disciplined now for pride. And now we finally got to the end times where God in the last half of the tribulation is judging the earth. And all the inhabitants, the non-Christians in the earth. And you get to chapter 16 where we have the first of the, the bowl uh, judgments. And go down to verse 8 of chapter 16. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory Fire is raining down from the sky so much that people are getting third degree burns on their skin. Their skin is burning up because they're being judged by the almighty God. And out of pride, 
They refuse to repent so as to give God the glory. God is saying to you and to me, what will it take for you to submit this sin area of your life over to me? What's it going to take? Is it, do I have to go public with this sin area of your life? Is, he's asking you and me tonight. Is that what it's going to take? I mean, think about all of, the, you know, we live in a culture today, guys, in my little soapbox, if I could. We live in a culture today where if you sin big and you're, you're in the public eye, all you need to do is confess it. And we are very, very quick as a society to forgive you. Just confess it. That's all we want is a confession. You look at sports star athletes or music stars or rock stars and all, if they blow it big time, all they need to do is get up in front of all of us and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. And as a culture, we say, okay, that's fine. We'll move on. Presidential people in the past. I mean, we'll, we'll forgive anyone. Should we forgive? Absolutely. But look at it. Well, we'll go back to James. James says in the, in, in verse 11 of James chapter four, Hey, before you get real good at forgiving and just moving on, I want to challenge you to sit in your sin for a little bit. Instead of laughter and joy, James says, maybe there should be some more mourning and weeping and wailing because of the depravity that we are capable of of accomplishing. In fact, I was talking to a colleague today after work and and we were discussing this issue and I said, can you think of anyone that was proactive with a sin area So before they got caught, they dealt with it in the public eye. And we thought about it and thought about it. And we thought, no, you know, the the reason they came clean was because they got caught. No, the reason she came, she got caught. No, he, you know, he got caught. And then I thought, I don't know if you've heard the story about uh, a famous pastor uh, in the Midwest, John Piper. Maybe you've read his books. Uh, But John Piper took a sabbatical recently and he went before his congregation and he said he was being proactive and he said, I'm struggling with pride right now. Megachurch pastor, phenomenal author. And he went before his congregation and basically said, I need to step down for a season because I'm struggling right now with this issue of pride. Now, there was no major scandal. There was no smoking gun there was no woman in the in the aisle you know nothing like that he just said i'm just i'm really struggling with this and i think it's just you know i don't think i'm i'm fulfilling i think the first timothy passage about the call to be an elder and so i need to step away for a little while and we thought you know that's about the only person i can think of that has been proactive and has acknowledged what james is calling you and me to acknowledge which is why do we wait until we get caught to address the sin in our life why not be proactive These people in Revelation, I don't know if you're still in there, but verse 10 goes on. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened. And listen to this. They gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But listen to this. And they did not repent of their deeds. God is just raining out judgment upon the earth. These people are dying by the hundreds of millions And they will refuse to submit to God. James comes to you and to me tonight and he says, humble yourselves, Christian. And then he says in verse 7, submit therefore to God. Pride or humility. What, What is it for you? So think about it this way. Get in your mind, because I don't want to make this super hyper spiritual or anything. So get in your mind someone that you would say is a humble person. 
Who, who in your life, who in your circle would you say, if I were to ask you to give us a name of someone that you would say, that's humility right there. Who would you pick? Who, who, who comes to your mind? I, I, I'm willing, you know, if you have someone in your mind, don't mind sharing with us, I'd be interested in knowing. Is it a, is it a spouse? Is it a grandparent, child, a coworker, professor? Who, who would you say displays humility? My dad. And, and do you mind me asking, when, when you think of your dad, what characteristics come out that you would identify with humility or humble? Uh, he's a really sweet guy, uh, divorced once, but he's on his second marriage. Uh, he's always been very caring and forgiving. Um, my mother was sick. He helped take care of her be- way before she died. Uh, uh, That's great. Um, I don't know. He's, you know, he forgives me and everybody, and he's still forgiven me for things that I did, and I'm still beating myself up. That's great. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Anyone else? Who would you say, a couple down here, who would you say is a humble person in your life? And the reason I say that, guys, is because, because I want this to become practical. If you can't think of anyone that's humble, um, then, then really we have no frame of reference to be humble other than the scriptures. And so certainly there has to be people in your life, I'm hoping, that you would say, yeah, I would identify that person as a, a man or woman of humility. My brother-in-law, James, he's, um, before he was married to my sister, he was married to another gal who had cancer, and uh, she was supposed to be in care where the nurses did all the really terrible stuff, and he refused. He was like, she's my wife. I'm going to continue taking care of her till the very end. He did everything, and even with my sister, he's just always puts her before him, yeah. always puts his kids before him. Yeah. He's just remarkable. I just love him. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's attractive. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's admirable because it really is. Guys, when I say pride versus humility, it really is a struggle for most of us to get to the point of saying, no, I, I want to live a life of humility. Uh, yes. Um, my mom, because... She's, like, always there for us, and she's always treating us to the things that we don't even thank her for because we're, like, so well-being, and we just take advantage of it. That's, I appreciate you saying How old are you? Twelve. Wow. Um, is your mom here tonight? She's right there. Okay, so she's hearing all of this. Yes. Uh, that's awesome. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Is there another one over here? Oh, right here, yeah. Um, I thought of a couple people. I don't know if we have this up on the screen, if we can go up to the screen. Um, Well, I'll take one over here and then, yeah, go ahead. Um, She's no longer here, but for me, it was my grandmother. Um, And why so? My grandmother loved God. Yeah. And the time that I spent with her was like one full year, but in that one year, she showed me what it meant to be humble. Yeah. She was the only house in the country that didn't have running water. Um, we had to get um, things from the well. We had a garden. Um, and she still did for other people. And even though, you know, she was looked down on, when my grandmother died, um, I've never seen so many people in my life that were there that had so many good things to say about her and the things that 
she had done because she always put God first. So she's my example of who I wanted to be. And I remember when I told her, I said, oh, Grandma, I don't want you to die. I, I want to die first. And she told me that's very selfish. She said, because the adult is supposed to go before the child. Huh. And I can just remember the things that she she taught me about how to love God. Yeah. And I walked away from that. But even though she's not here now, she is my frame of reference. That's neat. I appreciate that. It's interesting when we discuss who we think in our lives is displays humility. It's not just one characteristic that we admire, but humility seems to bleed into other areas of our life. We think of them as kind people, maybe as gentle people, as wise people. It's not so much just, well, they're humble and then their life is racked with sin or... But humility seems to bleed over into other character qualities that we want to exemplify. Um, Much more so than some people in our life we know to be prideful. The humble person passes away and we line up to speak about them and who they were and how the servant heart they had. And the prideful person passes away and we're hard pressed often because pride bleeds into other areas of life. You just don't say, well, that person's a prideful person, but man, they're a giver and a lover and a great... No, it seems to bleed over into they're selfish and they're arrogant and they're full of envy and they're always... It's always a competition for them. They always have to be the best. And and then when they pass away, we're hard-pressed. We want to say good things. But pride is like an addiction. It's all-consuming. Yeah. It sounds like we're uh, getting into... uh... A difficult position. We're talking about believers. True. And the believer is in Christ. And since that's the case, and uh, Galatians six two uh, talks about carrying each other's burdens. Yeah. Okay. And I, that is pertinent here. And that is certainly not pride. That is another commandment. Um. The point of it, I guess, that I'm trying to make is that is there a belief issue in pride itself that so many believers, and we all are to some degree or another, prideful? What kind of a reflection is that from from the theological point of view? Uh, So what I know to be true is the commands we're giving to humble ourselves, the opposite of that would be, to be prideful. And so when we're called to humble ourselves, all the commands in scriptures, guys, we have the ability to obey or not obey. And so if a believer, though they're in Christ, and in fact, when we get to James chapter 5, all of these commands in James chapter 5, if you want to sneak preview, go to 13 down and following, all speaks, I believe, to people who are living lives of humility because he says, is anyone suffering? Let him praise. Anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. If you're sick, call the elders. They'll pray over you. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. There seems to be this urging that James has to live in community with one another. But you cannot do that successfully on any level for any length of time if you're living in pride. Because when push comes to shove, if I'm prideful in a community of believers, I will want things to be done my way. I will want you to follow my path. I'll be the first to call out a judgment and to say, this is the way we have to go. And that's just not what I see we're called to do. 
We're called to be servant leaders. Those of you who have the gift of leadership, please don't associate pride with leadership. Well, I have to be prideful. That's how I get people to follow me. No. You got people to follow you because you're serving them. I have Mother Teresa up here, I think. Um, Mother Teresa, for me, was one of the three. I thought of three people when I was thinking about this. If we have it up there, uh, she exemplifies humility. Mother Teresa um, started this organization called the Missionaries of Charities. 4,500 sisters are now involved with this on a full-time level in over 130 countries. Of course, she was in Calcutta, India for the majority of her life. She, she met kings and queens and presidents and traveled around the world. She never wanted to do that. The irony, I think I mentioned a little while ago, she was the recipient of a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, she died one week after Princess Diana died, remember, in 1997? And who got all the fanfare that week? I mean, Princess Di's death trumped Mother Teresa's ten times over. She died the way she lived, in humility. Um, she, I have a quote. Uh, if you are humble, she says, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know what you are. And I love that. Uh, I'm not on social media, guys, and, and I don't say that to say that I'm in judgment of you. If you are, I'm not on it because I struggle with pride. Because I read my own press. And so I'm not on it because... If I go on it and look for, because we've never done this, right? We've never looked for, you know, anything good people have said about us. And I'm more concerned, not so much that people say bad things about me, but they say good things about me and I believe it. So I've just made the decision about, I don't know, 10 years ago that I just, yeah, I'm going to miss a few birthdays and a few birth announcements and probably see pictures of my high school graduates and in their 40s now, but. I'll just have to take, you know, take that loss. And the upside is, is if someone says something nice about me, I don't see it. And I don't say that in a way that I just, I struggle with that. I struggle with people saying nice things and then starting to believe my own press. Yeah, maybe I really am that good. No, Um, you're not. And then I would read the negative comments as well and suffer over those. And Mother Teresa comes along and says, if you're humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know who you are. I love that. Bill Bright's uh, someone, too, that I admire. I don't know if we have his picture up there. Um, I love Bill Bright. Uh, let's see, is it up there? Yeah. Uh, Bill Bright was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, he held five honorary doctorates, wrote dozens of books. In 1996, Bill Bright received the Templeton Prize. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's a... It's for people that do a lot for charities and whatnot. Million-dollar prize he won. Gave it all away. Gave it right back into Campus Crusade. In fact, what I admire the most, I was on staff with Crusade for a little while in the 90s. And what I love, 25,000 full-time staff in over 190 countries. I mean, this organization is, is the pinnacle of missions organizations. And what I love about Campus Crusade was what he and Vonette did, his wife, was... Um, they decided when they started this that they would raise their support like any other full-time staff has to raise their support. And probably many of you support or have supported Campus Crusade people over the years. And you could have easily have supported Bill and Vonette. They had their own support team. And they never took more than any other couple that was on full-time staff. In other words, if you were a full-time staff member working at ASU as a couple, you would have made the same salary as the CEO of Campus Crusade. For his whole life. He lived and died. Not in poverty. But certainly not in wealth. And he had many opportunities guys. 
to live a very lavish, luxurious lifestyle. Never did. He died living and praising Jesus and going to his grave saying, I am nothing. Get the focus off of me. But unless you think that, this is the, my third one, this is my mom. Um, unless you think that I'm all about, well, it's got to be some big spiritual creature, you know. And so I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm not Bill Bright. Uh, my mom, who's sitting right here. Um, uh, she, my mom and dad divorced when I was seven. And she raised uh, two boys as a single mom. And guys, I can't remember a time, and this was back in the 70s and 80s. Um, I never went without a meal. Um, but my mom... Um, my mom busted her butt to, for me and my brother. Um, it was hard. 50, 60 hour weeks. Um, she had to, you know, we were latchkey kids. And, you know, as a parent now, especially as a single parent now, um, I, I worry about that. I, I, every time I have to send my kids home before me just for a few minutes, I worry about that. My mom did that for, for days and weeks because she had to. Uh, my mom came out to Arizona, and she became an executive assistant over at Honeywell. And um, when my mom retired, um, I think she was, I think it was said that she was the only admin executive assistant that Honeywell threw a retirement party for, because she did her job that well. And so her boss and her boss's boss and, and dozens and dozens of employees that she worked with, for an admin assistant, you know, Threw a retirement party for her because she did her, did her job that well. If you were to ask my kids today, what is Grandma Judy? What did she do for a living? They wouldn't they wouldn't be able to tell you. They know Grandma Judy is someone who comes over uh, three times a week, takes them to school, brings Dunkin' Donuts, uh, cooks some cinnamon rolls, takes them to the movies, takes them to Extreme Air. That's who they know Grandma Judy is. She's not about the business of. Well, back in the day, I did this and this and this, and you should know me for that, and I should get a little bit more respect because I was this, you know, I was up here. And um, I, In fact, guys, I didn't know some of the things that my mom had done until I went to that retirement party. And then I heard these people worth six and some seven figures saying wonderful things about my mom. And so, Dr. Bill Bright, Mother Teresa, Judy Hudson, um, I hope I got your birth year right. I guessed on that. Was that right? Close? Sorry. And maybe I shouldn't have put that one up at all. Um, <laughs> I apologize. Um, you don't have to be a superstar to be humble. You just have to do what James is calling us to do. And that is to, to, to say to God, I need help. To submit to him, and in submitting to him, this is submission. Which, by the way, some of us really struggle with that. We struggle with submitting. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, we don't have time tonight, but you have a chance. Go to 1 Peter 3 and read a whole chapter on what it's like to submit. Um, in that particular chapter, slaves are called to submit to their masters. I, uh, there's uh, people submitting to government. There's wives submitting to husbands. Submission is a very, very biblical concept. I know we fight in our society today. I'm independent. I don't submit to anyone. I don't come under anyone. I'm my own person. Well, you're going to struggle then because the Bible says submit therefore to God. And if you struggle in other areas of submission, my guess is that's going to bleed over to your submission of God. Humble yourself before God. Submit to him. And then thirdly, he says in verse 7, resist the devil. And this is what we're going to pick up in two weeks. We're going to pick up on this issue of 
resist the devil. Do you and I have the ability to resist the devil? In fact, let's close with this. Go over to 2 Peter. Go over to 2 Peter and we'll close with this tonight. Do you and I have the ability to resist the devil? I think we do. James tells us to. And so we have to have some sort of power to be able to resist the devil. I think that power comes from a life lived in humility. Uh, James chapter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 2. Uh, no, I guess wrong. 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, and let's look at verses 1 to 3. Peter encourages you and, to me, uh, you and me to do the following. He says, speaking of things that we just talked about tonight, speaking of malice and, and slander, and he says, therefore, putting aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, James, I mean, Peter's assuming that you've done this, that you're doing this, that you're putting these things aside. He says, therefore, putting these things aside, don't just put them aside. But as Pastor Lynn talked about three weeks ago, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. James is saying, Peter's saying, if you're a believer in Jesus... It is a both and while I'm putting away these things, the slander and the bad mouth and the hypocrisy and the guile, while I'm doing that, I'm not just doing that. And then my, the, the, when I'm putting it, I have this void now, but rather I'm filling that void constantly with the word of God. It's not just I'm, I have the strength to resist the devil and therefore you stay over here and now I'm good to go. But the reason I'm able to resist the devil is because I'm over here filling my life up with the word of God. In fact, Peter goes so far as to say, like newborn babes long for the pure milk. When's the last time you were around a baby that was hungry? That baby will not let you leave the room until you've satisfied him or her. They'll keep crying and crying and crying and it'll get louder and louder and louder because they know what will satisfy them and that is nothing but milk. And Peter challenges you and me tonight. Is that the way we approach God's word? Is God's word for you and for me convenient? Is it something that we do every now and then? Or do we actually go to bed with all of our problems, with all of our headaches, with all of our challenges, and yet we still go to bed saying, God, I can't wait to get up tomorrow. And at some point tomorrow, I need to hear from you. And I don't care if that's an audio CD. I don't care if that's a, an app you've bought. I don't care if it's the actual hard copy. But at some point, God, I'm going to fill my need of the pure milk of the word of God by spending time with you. Maybe that could be our prayer. That maybe if, if that hasn't been a part of your thinking lately, that God's word is convenient, I'll pick it up when I can. I know I go to Tuesday nights and Sunday mornings and that maybe that could be our prayer tonight, that I would long for your word, God. And starting tomorrow, I'm gonna find myself in your word in the quietness of my office or my room or my car, I'm going to find myself in your word. When we do that, 
then when we talk in two weeks about resisting the devil, it's going to make complete sense because you'll have the power to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for tonight. And God, I pray that as these great folks here leave and, and enjoy the rest of the week, that the, the residue, the remnant of Easter Sunday would, would not be lost. And that we would enjoy um, what, what happened over the weekend, that we would champion it. God, that people would come back next Tuesday, learn more about this wonderful church and where it's headed. But God, in the meantime, that we would do what Peter asks us to do, and that is to hunger and thirst after after the word of God. God, give us opportunities. Even tomorrow, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray something bold tonight, God, and that is that, is that we would be convicted. If, if anyone in this room gets to the end of the day tomorrow and, and we haven't spent some time with you, that there would be such a conviction that we wouldn't be able to watch TV, we wouldn't be able to uh, get on the phone, we wouldn't be able to get on the computer, that we would feel such conviction about spending time with you that we would find a quiet place break open the word of God and spend some time rightfully so with our heavenly father. We de- you deserve nothing less for the days we have here on earth. God, you deserve nothing less. And when our final day is called father, we will give you all the praise and we will enter into a glorious forever with you. Thanks for saving us in Jesus name. Amen. We'll see you in two weeks.